This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. I have faced down some terrible things in my life. I've had doctors make mistakes that almost killed me. I've been in the ICU of the world's scariest hospitals. I've had traumatic surgeries and procedures performed on me under emergency conditions. People less sick than me have died right next to me. And if I'm still alive, there must be a reason. I want to use the life I've been given as a way to help others. I let the losses teach me what they needed to teach me. Even if I was thrown under the wave, I learned how to stand up, to recover over and over again, and to survive. I pulled from my faith and my grit, and in the middle of all of it, a soul grew. It made me strong. I began to thrive. I developed an immense capacity to endure hard times. I understood suffering as much as a white middle-aged American woman can understand suffering. Suffering became a companion and a teacher. I learned a lot about myself and the world, about my family, my faith, my priorities, and my values. After everything I experienced, I realized that other people experience similar loss, heartbreak, and dysfunction with no effective coping mechanisms. I wanted to help, says Cindy. Valeria Tellis interviews Cindy Finch, the author of the Amazon bestseller, When Grief is Good, Turning Your Greatest Loss into Your Biggest Lesson. Cindy Finch is also a licensed clinical social worker, LCSW, therapist, coach who specializes in helping people through their darkest times. Cindy trained at the Mayo Clinic and has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, HuffPost, and Cure magazine. A survivor of traumatic life events, Cindy writes and works from lived experiences. She's helped thousands of people through their suffering, encouraging them to move forward and keep enduring to come out invincible. Meet Cindy at cindyfinch.com. Here's the interview with Cindy Finch. In your own words, who is Cindy Finch? <laughs> Hi, thanks for asking. So so Cindy is a, a curious child in life, and she's also um, a helper and a healer. But more importantly, I'm a mother of three children and, uh, and a wife, and I'm a child of God. That's who I would say I am, and a, and a creative soul. How do you define spirituality, and what, where, and who is God to you? <laughs> if only if only one person had the definition on that, wouldn't that make life simpler? Sure. Yeah. How do I define spirituality? It's it's the connection of myself to something bigger, 
um, the universe, the eternal being. And spirituality is is something where I'm able to get outside of myself and and see myself in in proper perspective. And so, being in nature, sitting on the edge of the ocean, being in the forest, these things are far bigger and we're here long before we were and we'll be long after and I think it just helps us to to see life in 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 its proper proper size that you know we're not that long on this earth and and it's important for us to to be and do things that honor it and who's God you know I wish I could answer that because the more I figure that try to figure that out the less I understand and the more mysterious the idea of God is to me I I grew up in a in a the Christian faith tradition, and the more life has gone on, the more I realize that God is so much bigger than the religious boxes that we want to put God into, and and so I guess I'm still figuring that out who God is. But I I certainly can tell you that God tethers me to something bigger than myself, and and that my sensation of being held in bigger hands and being guided and that there's a plan at work is what has the the themes that have repeated themselves continually in my life. And that makes me feel secure and safe. And would you call that a belief or trust or faith? They might be the same thing. I think they're, yeah, I think they're the different aspects of the same, like two sides of the same coin. You know, when I when I trust, I have to believe on some level. And when I'm believing, there has to be faith even in there. I mean, there is a scripture in the Bible that says, I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, it's like both at the same time. Another question I have for you related to the idea of God of a higher being or divine force, as I usually say, is that... It's that connected to the human experience in the sense of coming here to learn lessons from our challenges. And are we assigned the challenges that we go through in life in order to learn those lessons? <laughs> oh, so you're asking the easy questions today. That's a... <laughs> yes, yes, and right. <laughs> yeah. Are we are we assigned those challenges possibly? I think when I look at a worldview like I stated a few minutes ago, like I believe there's a bigger plan at work, then I would have to say yes. I think we are assigned those challenges, but they're not for the purpose of the challenge. The purpose is so that I can grow and fulfill my work on this earth. And so like any training for a job, when you go through new employee training, you have to be trained in the ways of your employer and the company. And and so those things alter me and those things challenge me, but ultimately I grow. Also the trash delivery person is here in the background. So uh-huh. life being life, Cindy. <laughs> that's right. We that's right. We'll just go with yeah, it. those we'll things. Uh, absolutely. The question I have is what is your vision for that? Is there a destination for that fulfillment? Mm. Is that what you're doing today or there is something bigger that you envision? You know, I like this quote and it says that a rising tide raises all ships. And when I think about the balance of good and evil in the world and hurt and pain versus love, and, you know, honestly, those things kind of coexist alongside each other. So if I were to look at a purpose, 
in life or work, it to me would be reverse, reversing the works of evil and, and um, darkness and pain and things like that. And there's a, he, a Hebrew phrase that I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but it's tikkun olam, which means to heal the world or restore the world. And and in my own faith tradition, that world is healed and restored through Christ. Um, in other faith traditions, you know, those those, those stories are, are rolled out a little different way, but restoring us and bringing us back to God or to the divine is ultimately the purpose of the work. And, and when, when I'm mired in pain and when I'm cut off from the reality of God's love or the universe's love for me, then I can't function from that love because I'm just attuned to my pain. And, and so I, I suppose some of my work, like your work, which is what brought us together, is to help bring people back to God, back to love, back to the universe. And, mm. and so that, that great restoration, if you will. Have you heard of a time in humankind where that happened? That we <laughs> were in harmony and living unconditional love? I think if you look at uh, each human person as a universe within themselves, if there's a time when there's peace in me and there's time when there's when my suffering ceases and when the darkness is dispelled and I'm fully in God's love, then then that's a, a microcosm, if you will. That's a, a, a small expression toward that. But there was a time back in the, oh, I'm probably going to get the dates wrong, maybe the 1400s. But we had the we had the plague and, and, you know, the the most recent pandemic and there was oppression politically and religiously and there was great sickness and suffering. And within 100 or 150 years, then our historic world actually rolled into the Renaissance. And so there was this great darkness that gave way to light and to creativity. And, and, and so I think of those things episodically through history. And then I think of the individual of the individual being, like I said at the beginning, that those, you know, we really can become a reflection to the world around us. And I would think that everybody during the Black Plague had to in some way, or most people in some way, became a collective reflection of restoration because the creativity burst after the oppression of the sickness. And I kind of hope that for our world. Do you see a difference between pain and suffering? I think that's such an age-old question, and it's such a good one, and it's been around for so long and requires people to confront and answer it. I I mean, I know the Buddhist tradition is, you know, pain is always going to happen and suffering is optional because it's so much about perspective on what that pain is accomplishing. Like, even in the book, I write about, you know, when a woman is travailing in labor pain and she's definitely suffering and it's the worst pain, you know, her body being split open to birth a child. There is so much pain and suffering on in that probably the worst pain a person can imagine. And, and yet women go on to have more children because of the beauty that comes from that process. And, and the beauty itself becomes a medication or a numbing agent against remembering the pain because what you get for it is so powerful. And, and so I I think, I think, you know, semantics, pain and suffering, geez, I don't want either of those things. 
And I will say, you know, no pain, no gain in so many ways. Like most people I know who haven't gone through pain and suffering of some kind, I don't know how this is going to sound to our listeners, but often those people are shallow, you know, they're, 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 they're not highly, they're, they're kind of shallow. Valeria, they're, they're not people who can sink deeply and, and really come from a place of knowing. They might be able to theorize, but, it, but, but they don't know deep in their soul with conviction and experience. Yeah, that resonates true to me. I have seen that around me, my family members. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully they're not going to listen to this episode, not all of them. <laughs> and I also have seen people who have been through lots of pain, like it's inevitable not to go through pain, being a human body. But I see that they become shallow. They surface through life after all those experiences with pain because they have not really understood pain or processed it pain. Mm-hmm. That's what it seems to me. Mm-hmm. It really comes that message when I am kind of around people who have been through a lot, but they have not learned. So I, would, mm-hmm. I, I kind of often wonder why. And that comes to mind after talking to so many people here too about these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. I, I think that there's, you know, I actually don't know the answer to that. And it's a good question for our listeners and ourselves to ponder but I can make some observations on it because I don't know that that one thing will apply to the masses of people who have experienced um, what I would call needless suffering or suffering without purpose. Because I, I would I would say that the story hasn't totally been written. Like I know people because I, I work in the area of grief and loss and suffering with my clients, with my family, myself that sometimes not until the very last breath of somebody's life does it all make sense or come together or galvanize them in a way that they can articulately speak truth or forgiveness or grace or mercy or purpose or meaning. And so sometimes it's just about timing that it hasn't all come together yet. But I like this little saying I heard from a leader once. He said, get get better, not bitter. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Right. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> I want to I say that to people. Don't get bitter, get better. That's such a beautiful way of seeing perspective. I love that. It's coming from inner wisdom that we are not able to see the big picture, most of us. Yeah. So it's easy yeah. to judge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So easy. Yeah, if somebody's not right where I am or I think they should be, to me, life's just not done with them yet. Thank you for saying that. It's a beautiful reminder for all of us, too. And another open question. I have too many. Maybe I have to skip the opening questions for now. But (laughs) let me ask you this one. How would you describe grief from your own perspective? Oh, well, there's a quote. It's a beautiful one. It says, grief is love with nowhere to go. And it's that idea of what I thought was going to happen in life didn't. And I'm experiencing not just the loss of my life or my loved one or my my hopes, but it's really death of the dream. And, and you know, grief, grief is, is such a heavy topic. And it's so funny because I didn't even want to be the spokesperson on grief because our tendency in culture is to avoid it. And and yet grief is this huge, What I, here's my bottom line, grief is a huge change agent. When grief is in our lives, it has the ability to transform us, to catalyze us, and to create something that has never been there and to move us forward on our path. 
if we will listen to it, if we will lean into it. And there's just dozens and probably hundreds of stories of people being changed by their pain and grief, whether they wanted it or not. It has, I mean, Tyler Perry, the amazing director, filmmaker, actor, producer, if you hear the story of his childhood and where he came from, his entire platform is based on the loss and pain of his childhood and his movies and his plays and his characters are all a result of what my favorite topic is, which is post-traumatic growth, growth after our traumas. What is your understanding of healing and what are some of the misconceptions about healing that we have, Cindy? You know, um, that's a good question. Healing is such a big topic, but what I know is that people really seek healing. Like if I can just get my life back to the way it was before, I will be fine. And, and And the truth is, is that for many of us, perhaps most of us, that's not an option, especially during COVID. And I have a, I have somebody in my class right now who I had to teach a couple of classes based on my framework of grief and growth. And, and she recounted a story just last night of watching her mother go from a, a pretty healthy older adult to within 10 days dying of COVID. And so when you talk about healing in that, in that setting, maybe it was healing for her to go to heaven or to an afterlife. Maybe it was healing for, for, I I don't know, Valeria, like it's such a, it's such a big one because for me, I would have preferred to never get sick and have to think about things like healing or wishing to have my life restored. But going through it, I tell people I would never choose what happened to me, but I, at this point would also never change it. I wouldn't choose it, but I wouldn't change it. And so had I been given a ticket out of it, I never would have gotten what I, I I wouldn't do the work I do. I wouldn't have written my book. You and I wouldn't be talking today. Uh That's true. Yeah. So So perhaps, perhaps my healing was to go through it because it healed me from a disease I didn't even know I had, which was immaturity, selfishness, more eat, things like that. If life had one purpose, one purpose only, what would that be? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's see. Simple ones, simple ones. To me, I I would go back to heal heal the world. I think we're all here to leave things better than how we found them and to do good, um, to... Let let me land it. In, In the Christian faith tradition, I'm to love God and love others as I love myself, which takes us right back to the very beginning of what you said that I need to love myself unconditionally. Because one of the problems that I see is that people want to help others, be good to others, but they bypass themselves in that process. And and then the help ends up being controlling or manipulative or codependent and not not unconditional. And so I, I think the purpose um, of life is to to know and be known first by God or spirit and then to be a reflection of that love in the world. And then the, that byproduct can't help but be a healing wherever you go to take that. P- personally, my motto is to help people take their next steps, whatever those are. I help people take their next steps. And because all the steps are not up to me in your life or my clients' lives, there's 
I'm one point of light on people's paths. And so that's my purpose. I love the way you connect healing to spirituality. That's something that I also believe in, if it is a belief system. (laughs) So you wrote the book, When Grief is Good, Turning Your Greatest Loss into Your Biggest Lesson. Talk to me for a moment, Cindy, about the main inspiration and intention of writing this book. Well, I'll have to tell you a story because I think it, 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 it speaks to it. So I have a mentor, Lori Jean Glass, who I really admire. Um, she, she said, gosh, you know, you really need to write a book. There's so much that's gone on that's happened in your life. And I said, okay, great. I'm going to write it about bravery and I'm going to write it about courage and I'm going to write it about overcoming and about post-traumatic growth. And, and she said, well, hold on, you know, like those, those things eventually happened for you, courage and bravery and overcoming, but that's not where you started. And, and there, there's a lot of darkness and a lot of dark energy and a lot of grief in your story. And eventually some th- really good things came of it. But if you bypass the darkness of your story, you're going to do your readers a disservice. You need to be honest because most of us don't come to courage or bravery as a starting point. Um, we, we have to really go through a very dark night of the soul and then maybe we can scratch and claw our way to some shred of light. And so, so she said, literally, you, you will do your readers a disservice if you don't write the truth. And the truth is, is that grief was, was a catalyst for me and I had far more of it than I cared to. But along the way, I was able to figure out, like feel my way along in the dark and go like, okay, like, what do I do now? What do I, what about next? And of course that came from reading books and sitting with good mentors and praying and, and a lot of failure. Um, and so that's why I wrote this book because when I was going through the different ordeals that I talk about in the book, um, I didn't have a guide. I didn't have a guide and I had So the elements of my faith, like the Bible, I had gatherings, I had um, spiritual leaders, I had prayer, but I didn't have a systematic way to know how to do what I needed to do. And it was only on reflection in the rearview mirror of life that I went, oh, okay, so when I had to struggle with my belief system, because my belief system could not keep pace with my reality, then I had to amend my beliefs. So that's where I write the chapter on resetting our expectations. So it's a it's a reflective um, like guide I wish I would. It's a roadmap for what I wish I would have had. You are a licensed clinical social worker, therapist, mm-hmm. coach. So talk to me about the purpose of this work of being a therapist and a coach and how do listeners find you if they wanted to meet you? Would it be in person, online, groups? Well, I can meet people um, various ways, but cindyfinch.com is my website. I do one-to-one work on Skype or in purpose, on purpose, uh, in person, Southern California. Um, and then I lead online classes. But my favorite thing I'm working on right now are retreats. 
So people can come and work with myself and a little team over a five-day deep dive into their storyline to work through the, the difficult parts and the parts where they're stuck and the loss and the traumas. And I'm really loving that right now. That's at a place called the Glass House in Northern California. And so I suppose if, if people want to um, interact with me, I would love to meet you and let's work together in some way. But I also have a lot of blogs out there if people just kind of want to do a lot of self-study and education um, for themselves so that they can grow. Because that's what I did when I was struggling. I had I became a an avid reader. I couldn't get enough of healing information. So I've tried to make that available to people in the book and on my blogs. I would love to um, for you to talk to me about the poem On the Shore. <laughs> what was the inspiration to write that poem? So to write that poem, first of all, that's my favorite writing I've ever done. And I've written for the LA Times and Huffington Post and I have a book. But that particular poem here, let me give you the setup. I was in a wheelchair, first of all, in the outdoor, outside of a hospital, in the little courtyard where you could go for like an hour a day. And I, my situation had gone from bad to worse, and I wanted out. I was done. I had been in heart, liver, and lung failure. I had massive internal organ damage from my cancer treatments. I had three little kids at home. My marriage was struggling. And I felt like physically, emotionally, spiritually, I was done. I was ready to check out. And to be perfectly honest, I was furious at God and eternity, and I just had had enough. And I had told God, like, look, if you're some kind of loving being, then you wouldn't put me through this and my children. Um, it's just gone from bad to worse repeatedly. I think I had been hospitalized at that point 45 days. And I stayed up all night crying, fighting, you know, angry at God, weeping. And I said, the, merc the most merciful thing you could do for myself and my family is to let me die tonight. And at 5 a.m., you know, the sun's coming up. Doctors are starting to make their rounds. I was in a deep depression. And I just thought, God's a fake. God's a fake. This is not real. And I was so furious. But then I had this little awareness just like on the edges of my mind that said, okay, but had he answered your prayer and you would have died, you didn't actually... You didn't actually write down a step-by-step -step for your kids like of what was going to happen and, and what they could expect because my children were really polarized by my pain and my problems. And it was just a kind of a hot mess, to be honest. And I mean, my daughter, I remember she we made a plan, if you can imagine this, what would happen when I died so she could know step-by-step. -step. Like, that's so disturbing, right? She wanted to know who's going to cook who's going to cut the boy's hair, her little brothers, who's going to take me to school. So she has so much anxiety. And so, so I said, oh my gosh, I can't have died last night. Maybe this next night I'll die. But before that, I'm going to write a poem or a message to my children about what's going to happen with me and what they should expect just to take, try to take care of them. And so I had a nurse push me out in my little wheelchair with all my tubes and lines. And I sat in the courtyard of St. Mary's Hospital in Rochester, Minnesota on a napkin. And I wrote that poem. And to me, it needed to be there. And I felt so complete after that. Two things happened. One, I felt tremendously better. And two, I no longer wanted to die. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So it's one of those ways I could process my grief by leaving, leaving a message for my children. Would you recite that poem, Cindy? Of course. Please. When I, when I gave the poem to the publisher with the book, they read it and they really didn't know what to do with it. They're like, oh, this, we don't know where to put this because the whole book is so instructional, but this poem is rather intimate. So the poem is on 205 of the book and it just kind of doesn't fit anywhere, but it fits perfectly for me and I hope for others. So it's called On That Shore and it says, if I should go and skies turn gray and life swings long and low, if clouds should burst and hearts should break and between us time should grow, then know that I've but morphed a bit and flown on up ahead to wait upon the shores of God on this path that I've been led. I'll sing, I'll dance, I'll play all day and the stories I will hear from those who've gone before me and from those who now are near. Rumors and longings from this secret place have billowed through my mind. Years I've longed to see my home and now at last it's time. Time for songs, time for joy, time for walks and talks. Time to know as I've been known, as mysteries are unlocked. My heart will bloom, his glory full, my lover now revealed, my feet upon his grass and my cartwheels in his fields. My hero and I will laugh and sing and his nobles I will greet. They've butterflied away like I, now his grass beneath their feet. Long and sweet, I'll drink it in, this new life from my old But know each day the shores I'll walk as I've grown now young from old. Know that I am waiting and longing for that time when your steps will meet my shore again and your hand joins back in mine. I'll leap, I'll run, I'll chase you down. I'll kiss you high and low. I'll tuck, I'll hug, I'll sweep you up there upon that shore. Your nose and ears I'll bite and chew as if they were a cake. My heaven will expand then when you, upon that shore, I take. When dance and laughs and sweet reliefs give full sail to this us, we'll talk, we'll tell of our sweet paths that heaven's brought us to discuss. I'll tell of times when from his lap, your face, your life, I poured the fragrant wine of our dear love and my longings from that shore. Oh, my captain, how he'd silk my hair and gently touch my face. His hands, his love will silk you too as we wait for our embrace. So dawn with me, step high and light when life pulls hard and mean. I've butterflied and the days will fly until I greet you on that beach. My kiss, my hugs will wait for you and then still all the more when in that time my God and I will meet you on that shore. Thank you for being open to life in all aspects of life. That's what I see too. You became open. Although there was a moment, like all of us, we have moments of doubts and deep fear. But there's always something there, which I call the true self or the God self that's always there watching, reminding us that we are not just the experience of body-mind. That's right. From your perspective, how can we prepare for the end of life? I have now in my family my husband's mother. She's in the end of her life. I see how challenging it is for all of us to even to have conversations about this kind of conversations. It's really a challenge. 
Well, our culture is so death averse, right? We want healing. We want medicines. We want intervention. We want to live forever. And and I think the, the biggest thing I would say about getting ready for end of life is to do your work. And because here's why, because the family that you have grown or your mother-in-law or you know, my, my mother, my mother-in-law, you want to leave them in the best possible state. And the, the way that we do that is by having peace, by having blessing, by, by having, allowing, you know, things to happen and for people to, to be okay. So let me give you an example. I have a client who's 86 and she, she expressly specifically came in to do the work at the end of life. And, and the importance that of what she is focused on is being a blessing to her children and allowing them now to give back to her what she has been pouring into them for 55 or 60 years. And, and she's going to write a book where each chapter is focused on one of her seven children to just talk about how much she loves them, what a good job they've done and, and what she sees about them that's special. And so when we die, the the least amount of trauma that can happen in the dying, the handing off, the transition, the money, the all of that, the least amount of trauma and drama that we can produce, the better our families will do after we're gone. I watch traumatized, angry, unhappy, vicious people, and what they do is they leave a legacy of pain with unforgiveness, bitterness, judgment. So my battle cry for people is leave in love, leave in love, stop the resentment, Get find a way to resolve it, to make it work, to get to a peaceful place. Because why would you want to leave your loved ones tied in knots? How do we do that? We need to be creative, right? Since that's <laughs> what it is. Here's what I Creativity. say. Right? Here's what I say. Find, find out who was the favorite in the family and push them in there to have the conversation <laughs> with, yeah, with that idea. parent. Because <laughs> even though you or I may know that it's good to talk about these things at the end of life, the problem is, is that the older generation, and by older, 75 and older, 75 to 95, that generation... Um, emotion, emotional health was a luxury. And so we know for the builder generation, their, their job was to work hard and take care of their families. And beyond that, they don't have a big, not all of them, but most of them don't have a big repertoire of emotional health or a big vocabulary around what it means to die well. So that it may be. And the other thing is I've known people, I used to work in a hospital where the matriarch or patriarch of the family that was dying did not want to talk about it or make decisions. They wanted that all handled by another member of the family. They didn't even want to know the diagnosis. It all needs to be handled somewhere else. So I would say if two family members or more can come together and make their own contingency plan and allow that parent to be um, in their place, which can often be immature, childlike, withholding, I don't know what your situation is, but that if two people, like-minded people can get on the same page, they can actually be quasi leaders of what's going to happen, even without mom or dad or older person chiming in much, because they may not want to or know how. I would love to talk to you for a moment about chapter nine, living 
with honor after your loss. That chapter is about post-traumatic growth. You write, when we go through the grieving process and meet it all the way to the best of our ability, it can transform us. Talk to me about something that caught my attention was the micro grieving. It kind of made me think about <laughs> micro dosing, <laughs> which is very different. <laughs> it's a different conversation. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> I think micro grieving is about showing up for the grief process and not avoiding it, but also realizing I don't have to go fully into the deep, dark belly of pain because the number one thing I hear from people who get. Um, complicated grief that they have avoided for years and years and years, and it's become a physical illness or an addiction or a broken relationship. Like that's how it's manifesting itself when we have these, how should I say, constipated emotions, um, is that they're afraid that if they go into it, it's never going to stop. And, and so I like to recommend that people do some bit of something. And me writing that poem was a micro grieving practice. You know, me sitting and going through old pictures of my beloved and remembering beautiful things I liked about them is a a small little grief. But also in, I think, chapter three or four, I talk about my cry closet, where I specifically set up my closet as a birthing place for emotions. I go in and say, tonight at six, I'm going to cry. And at 6.30, I'm going to come out and I'm going to take a hot bath and be good to myself. And then tomorrow's a new day. And so I think it's the intentionality and the specificity of saying this person or this thing meant something big to me. And this is how I move with that loss so that I can honor it and grow from it. Yeah. So it takes courage, doesn't it? And trust too. Yeah. (laughs) Trust and courage. And some skill, because a lot of us aren't taught how to work with heavy emotions, grief, loss, disappointment. So we go to the bar, we drink. Yeah, that's how we work with it. You have so many wisdom, so many beautiful passages, reminders there. You say, what I learned is that grief and loss are the doorway to greatness, the doorway to activate our gifts through loss which goes back to the same message about um, growing from trauma and pain. Mm -hmm. And then you have also a beautiful message on self-preservation. That's chapter three that you just mentioned, cry, the cry closet. It's part of that. Talk to me for a moment about the importance of self-care and self-love. Self-love is one of my favorite topics. Yeah. So I, I, I talk about that a lot. Well, first, you probably know this too from talking to different people in this field is that so many people will self-neglect like they will work hard they'll take care of other people they'll meet the bottom line they're highly efficient but when it comes to themselves they do what I call self-neglect and they will really reject themselves go around themselves people of faith do this all the time they do the spiritual bypass where they're like I'm going to just trust God Meanwhile, they're not taking care of their health, they're not eating properly, they're not getting enough rest, but they're trusting God. And my question is, what are you trusting God for? It's your job to literally take care of yourself. And so, you know, this thing about self-care during grief is, is a gentleness or kindness to oneself. 
And, and here's why, and especially for women, women listeners, the more you pour into yourself and take care of yourself, the more you will have to give. The second, the second part is if you're raising children, your children are watching what it means to be an adult. And if you model self-respect, they will pick up two things. One, that you're a person that they need to have respect for because you respect yourself and they, that you, they need to treat you with honor. And the two, they'll pick up how to take care of themselves that they have worth and value because they watched it modeled. So that's what I would talk about self-care. Self-care in and of itself, if it didn't have bigger lessons to it, people, a lot of people could take it or leave it because, you know, we want to just get into work or whatever. But, but that, that you're transmitting to the next generation how to look at yourself. And two, you'll have more to give and more energy to do your work with. It seems to make sense and to be something that we should naturally kind of flow into. But it doesn't happen. It's kind of interesting how we have to make it a practice, right? To love ourselves, to take care of ourselves. Well, because it's seen, um, it's seen as selfish. It's seen as selfish. And, and, you know, a lot of women in my generation, so I was born in the late 60s, we are taught to be nice and take care of others. And, to, and my mom came, was born during, you know, the World War II, Great Depression era, where it was very much about self-sacrifice and do what is needed for the greater good of the of the country and that you're to be the bottom priority. And so that's that sets up a world of problems with martyrdom and and oh so many things. Yeah, yeah. No, no, self-care is not selfish. It's that's why I call it self-preservation and self-respect. I love the um your book, like I said before, it becomes like a this roadmap to the steps that we need to take, like a system to, I would say, to unconditional love, though. That's what it comes to me. It's such a beautiful reminder in every way. And you have so many steps there, so many suggestions. You have the please skills that is <laughs> under self-preservation. That caught my attention. And then uh, chapter five, resetting our expectations. That's another beautiful chapter. Would you like to elaborate or add to anything about that, Sandy? I think with, I, I do, if that's okay, I think with resetting our expectations that many of us can spend a lot of time circling around in what we thought should have been, could have been. And, and I think as we update our GPS on life of, of what is realistic, like a lot of people want to spend time in fantasy, like my mom should be this to me or my husband could do that. But when I get into reality about what is, and, and the truth about what's happening, it's important that I keep pace with that. And a lot of times that means I have to um, amend my internal belief system and my operating system about life. And, and so that's what chapter five is about. For instance, you know, I think that, uh, and I list them in the book, like, um, you know, I believe that if you do good, this is what I used to believe. If you do good, you'll receive good, kind of a karmaic sort of thing. And, and, and you know, there, there's teachings in most world religions about altruism and reciprocity and things like that. But the truth is that I can do all the good I want and that I cannot foolproof life and that very bad things happen to good people. 
And if I stay in my immature belief that if I do good, I'll receive good, I'm going to have a shitty life experience because I'm going to feel entitled. I'm going to think that life should be more like a vending machine. Mm, Yeah. Right. And I'm not, I'm not going to be able to see the higher purpose in struggling and bad outcomes. So true. Uh, So much wisdom (laughs) and clarity. I love that about you and your work. It's truly beautiful, Cindy. Thank you for being you, for being open to life. You're welcome. I love chapter six, too. I want to say that quickly before the end of our conversation today. Lessons learned from living. Beautiful lessons there, too. You outlined them and explained them clearly. And I love the, besides your own poem, the heartfelt in the video that you sent me, too. There is a, another poem from Kathy Parker, writer and poet. Mm. says, grief is an alteration of who we once were to who we become now. It is an adjustment of ourselves, an adaptation to our souls. We don't work through our grief and return to who we once were. That's right. It goes back to this idea, the concept of growth and evolution. So everything mm-hmm. is happening. It seems life is showing us something. It's bringing us to this elevated space of clarity, but we need to be open in order to see them through challenges because they mm-hmm. often occur through challenges. So that's kind of interesting to realize too, that through suffering and pain, we become a lot more open to these profound lessons and insights. Well, we do. You know, I tell people that grief is the birthplace of empathy because it's not until I go through my particular loss that I'm able to really understand what somebody else faces. But I'll tell you what, anybody, most people I know who've lost a child or had cancer or a very catastrophic event, when they meet another person who's gone through that right away, they are riveted to that person's story. And they have a deep understanding usually of what it means to be them. And they could have been the most dense person before that. But as soon as they have this shared experience of loss, they have so much empathy and compassion and awareness of what it means that they've been changed. And it's really hard to just teach somebody empathy or mercy or compassion. It's actually you have to go through it. And then you can't, you almost can't keep it silent. You can't help it. Look at Sandy Hook. The parents that came through the Sandy Hook terrible mass shooting, they have changed the world. Mark and Jackie Barden on behalf of other children and other families. It seems like this life's trying to bring us to the space of awareness that we are all interconnected. Mm. It really feels that way. So because we live as if we're separate. There's a sense yeah. of that. We all have those. I mean, individuality is absolutely fine. It's part of life. We see that in nature. It's so diverse. But it's one thing. It's one, Everything's connected. That's right. That's right. Thank you so much again, Cindy, for everything that you represent in this reality. Oh, you're you. welcome. You're welcome. So glad to meet you today and get to talk. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, spiritual fun, meaningful fun. So before we end the conversation, let me ask you one last question. What three experiences you wish everyone to have before they lose the body, before they die? Oh, I, have, I wish they could have the experience of playfulness. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish they could have the experience of deep love. Yeah. 
And I wish they could have the experience of safety. Yes, a billion times to all of these beautiful <laughs> wishes of yours. <laughs> and before we say goodbye on a technical note, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Again. Oh, Cindy. yeah. Thank you. CindyFinch.com. Wonderful. I'll have the link on your podcast profile. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Wonderful. Bye. Bye for now, Cindy. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Cindy Finch and her work, please visit cindyfinch.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.